0: Psalm 42, to the choir master, a mascot of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By the day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever.
1: ...that maybe you've come across, you've heard or read it somewhere. Be where your feet are. Uh, It's a phrase that was made popular recently by sports executive Scott O'Neill, whose best-selling book is titled Be Where Your Feet Are, Seven Principles to Keep You Present, Grounded, and Thriving. You may recognize this phrase as a hashtag online or a bumper sticker around town or maybe as the hit single by Jason Mraz. However you've come across it, this idea of being where your feet are, in other words, being fully present in the ordinary moments of life, it's actually something that seems to resonate with a lot of voices in our culture today. From popular apps like Be Real to the incorporation of Uh, mindfulness techniques in psychotherapy, there seems to be a widespread effort in our culture to recover a sense of stability and groundedness in our present lives. And it's not hard to see why. On the one hand, we've all experienced, to some degree or another, the stymieing effect of dwelling on the past. And we see that comically portrayed in characters like Al Bundy, from the old TV show Married with Children, or more recently, uh, the character Uncle Rico from the movie Napoleon Dynamite, which is my daughter's personal favorite. (laughs) But both of these characters, uh, they're, they're desperately trying to validate their existence by constantly memorializing their illustrious high school football careers. But are we much better off by fixating on the future? Well, whether you suffer from FOMO or Fobo, which is fear of missing out or fear of better options for those of us non-Gen z or whatever the next Instagram-induced malady may be, many of us know the fatigue and frustration of trying to engineer our own perfect version of the American dream. And as if that weren't enough to overcome, factor in, the after-effects of two-plus years of COVID isolation. And you can begin to see how maybe we have forgotten where our feet are. As our communities are slowly trying to figure out how to reconnect, be it work, school, friendships, and yes, our church, perhaps you've noticed a kind of relational inertia that seems to prevent you from really engaging those around you in a meaningful way. So that even when you do muster the will to show up for things, you find it hard to be fully present in the moment. Maybe you're feeling that inertia at this very moment. Whatever the state of our hearts, friends, this God whom we've been addressing so far this morning through our time together, the God who inhabits eternity, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, for whom a thousand years is as a day, this God is present here among us by his Spirit. And my prayer is that as the living and eternal God addresses us in his word, we'll find that his very presence with us in worship, what the Roman poet Ovid called the deus praesens, is what makes all the difference for us. Our passage today speaks of the blessing of worship, the blessedness of being in God's presence together. And it's when we plant our feet and our hearts in that blessed presence that we'll find the true stability and groundedness we need most, especially in these kinds of times. So without further delay, let's open up the scriptures together. Psalm 84. We're looking at Psalm 84, and that's on page 493 of your pew Bibles. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. To the choir master, according to the Gitith, a psalm of the sons of Korah, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Then dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. A Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me a moment? Blessed Jesus at your word. We are here, as we just sang, to love and fear you. We want to know you and the power of your resurrection. So please, by your Spirit, open up to us your word that we may understand and that with that understanding we may be changed and sanctified within and without so that as we go from here we would live lives characterized by those who have been with you in your presence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we were reading, you might have noticed this. There's this term Selah, and it appears twice in the psalm. What Selah is, it's, it's basically a literary or a musical notation, uh, kind of a signal or a cue to the reader. And what it most likely means is something like pause or Break. And it divides this sum into three parts. And so for uh, a PCA preacher who loves three-point sermons, boom, we're good to go. And so I was quite thankful for that. Um, but each of these parts is centered around a specific blessing or benediction, a good word. And so let's look at each of these parts in turn. That's how uh, our, our teaching today is going to be divided, these three aspects of the blessing of worship. First, the thing thing we see from the beginning is a passion for God's presence. That's in verses one through four. A passion for God's presence. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now, right off the bat, we're faced with a curious scenario. The psalmist, if you noticed, is not being where his feet are. While we don't know exactly who he is or his life situation, the superscript of the psalm says it's a psalm of the sons of Korah, but the word of is ambiguous. We don't know if it's about the sons of Korah or in reference to them or authored by them. It remains an issue of debate among scholars. But regardless, it would appear that whoever this is, this faithful worshiper, this psalmist, is away from the temple in Jerusalem, which was the God-ordained epicenter of Israel's worship. And that displacement causes him to long for God's presence all the more. You can almost feel it coming off of the page. Wherever he is at the moment, he's consumed with this yearning and this passion for God's presence. And there are three things we see about the psalmist's passion. First, it's holistically human, The psalmist's passion is holistically human. Notice the words he uses in verse 2. His longing for God's presence is so intense that it causes him to faint. A word which could also be translated waste away or pine away. It's not only his heart, but his flesh as well that sings for joy to the living God. In other words, his entire being is consumed with this intense Emotion of longing. Now, we might assume that this intensity of emotion is due to his unique situation. Maybe just because he's been displaced from the temple, he's having these feelings and these urges. And you could say that his case is maybe one of absence, making the heart grow fonder, as they say. But I think there's actually more in view here than simply how the psalmist feels at this moment it's the more fundamental reality that when we come into God's presence in worship, he welcomes us as fully integrated human beings. And this, I think, might be a point worth considering as we kind of hit the pause button, especially for us in the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition. And this could be kind of a touchy topic so early on in the sermon, but I think the gospel gives us enough resilience Friends, to be honest about our cultural biases, to be aware of the ways that our expectations and norms for expression and worship are shaped by the culture of our church tradition, even when we think those expectations are simply biblical. In our church culture, when it comes to worship, it's, it's no secret that we place a high premium on things like orderliness, reverence, and doctrinal precision and exactitude. All of which, of course, are good and necessary human expressions of worship. But I think it's worth asking, what might we be missing out on when we assume that these are the only or even most appropriate expressions of worship? Some years ago, when I was still single, I was living with a few roommates, and uh, one of them used to love getting into these these uh, back and forths with me about all the problems he had with the modern praise and worship movement. And I think he, he kind of saw me as the right roommate to have these conversations with because I just happened to be the church musician that lived in the, the apartment. And, um, you know, I, I would agree with many of his opinions, uh, but others, not so much. And I remember there was this one song that he uh, just had really strong opinions about because he was bothered by all the repetition in it. And uh, at one point, he said something to the effect of, you know, I just don't understand why we have to sing that line more than once. You know, like, after the first time, wouldn't God just be like, okay, got it, no need to sing that again. And, you know, we had some laughs about it, and, you know, it was a pretty lighthearted conversation. He and I were, you know, relatively close. Uh, But later, the thought occurred to me, you know, what... What if that is the case? And what if the only compositional formula that God enjoys listening to in worship is one where uh, we just avoid repeating unless it's absolutely necessary? Um, We might actually be running into a problem because what then do we do with Psalms like 118 and 136, just to name two, I mean, how many times would we be able to sing His love endures forever until it became too rep- repetitive for God? Or what about certain historic church music traditions, such as the African-American gospel music tradition, where the use of repetition is intrinsically tied to the properties of the genre itself? Can we really say that the genre as a whole is Unsuitable for the worship of God for that reason alone. Friend, no matter your cultural background, your personality, your temperament, whether your church tradition originated in Northern Europe during the Enlightenment, or in Eastern Europe after the Great Schism, or on the plantations of colonial America, the invitation of worship is to come into God's presence as your whole self, body and soul heart and flesh, right brain and left brain. Because if you found it hard to be fully present in the moment during worship, maybe part of that reason is that only part of you is present. So we see this passion for worship in that it involves the whole human being. But then secondly, the psalmist's passion is aesthetically engaged. Did you notice how the psalmist describes the temple in verse 1? He calls it lovely, beautiful, glorious. Of all the qualities he could have extolled, its structural integrity, its convenient location, its practical utility, of all the things his soul could long for when he's away from the temple, it's the aesthetic beauty of God's dwelling that he celebrates. Have you ever wondered why God commands us to include art in our worship of him? Maybe that question, as you heard heard me just ask it, it it sounds strange. We don't usually ask those kinds of questions in church. But one might argue that God could have designed worship to be a kind of divine data dump, a highly efficient transmission of theological information that would have been more efficient. Yet, Thanks be to God. The scriptures show us otherwise, don't they? When we come to worship, we find ourselves in the presence of the all-creating one, the supreme artist who cares deeply for aesthetic beauty and who created us to reflect the same in our worship of him. Whether it's music or architecture or interior design, the call of the worshiper is a call to engage God aesthetically. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that all of us are necessarily called to make art for use in public worship. In fact, other than congregational singing, the Bible makes clear that art-making for worship is the vocation of those who are specifically gifted and skilled for the task. But what it does mean is that one of the most important ways that God blesses us in worship is through our experience of his beauty, Here's what one Reverend Dr. William Boyce writes in his recent article, The Case for Pew Bibles. As we see constantly in the Old Testament and reaffirmed through the Reformation, liturgical space has a catechetical effect. The physical things in our worship space teach us about God and about the anticipated experience of worship. From the shape of the space to the decorations and light The concrete location of our liturgy is a testimony to what we think we are doing and, in a sense, an indication of what we consider about the one whom we are worshiping. Now, it's at this point that perhaps some of us might be feeling a little on edge. After all, isn't it strange, perhaps maybe even bordering blasphemous, for us to make such a big deal about aesthetic beauty in our worship of God, aren't we running the risk of breaking the second commandment, which forbids the idolizing of art? Well, certainly, it's this very valid concern that has led some throughout the church's history to prohibit all artistic expression in worship except for what was deemed as purely functional or necessary. But, once again... It's the scripture itself that answers such questions for us. Because Psalm 84 doesn't just mention art. Psalm 84 is art. And like all good artists, the psalmist is using projection as a poetic device to paint a picture of a God so lovely and majestic that the house he inhabits takes on his loveliness itself. Do you see the poetic effect there? That's the nature of art. It gets under our skin in surreptitious ways. In other words, it was the psalmist's experience of God through artistic beauty and worship that now leaves him longing to get back into God's presence. And haven't we all experienced something of this in our daily lives as well? Uh, For the past few years, around November, all the way through March... Um, On any given day, my daughter will lament to me, Dad, I miss baseball. To which I'll reply and come alongside her, Bethany, so do I. And immediately for both of us, what floods our minds are memories that are associated with our experience at the ballpark. Whether it's the sound of the organ or the smell of really unhealthy ballpark food or the gentle spring breeze against our faces early on in the season. All of these things are symbols. They're signposts that we load with value, and we appreciate, and we would even extol. Those things are great. They're glorious. They're lovely. But yet they point us, ultimately, to the true passion of our hearts, baseball, which is not the true passion of our hearts, ultimately. But in this case, you get the point. That's what art does in worship. It's something to be engaged. Yet, as we engage art as God has given it to us to use in our worship of God, we engage through it to him. So, the the psalmist's passion, it's, Holistically human, it's aesthetically engaged, but thirdly, it's confidently humble. And this will be brief. Already in the first three verses, the psalmist addresses God twice as, quote, Lord of hosts, or in your translation, you might have Lord Sabaoth, a title he uses twice more for a total of four mentions in this psalm. What that's, that's referring to is God as the commander of the armies of heaven. He's the king upon the divine throne. Yet, look at what the psalmist says in the very same verse, verse 3. What is it he envies about the birds in the temple? It's that God's home is their home. As high and exalted as he is, here is a God who opens up his home for even the lowliest of creatures, not only providing shelter for the young and defenseless among them, such that birds are able to nest and lay their young in the very temple of God, but he even grants them the best space in the house at the very altars. And dear Christian, are you not of more value than they? The blessing of worship is the humble confidence we have to take shelter in the courts of the king, to know that even when we're at our lowest when we're at our weakest and most helpless state, the presence of God is for us a safe space to take refuge and heal. Beloved, is that how you come to worship? It always grieves me to hear of or interact with Fellow saints who are struggling and feel that because of their struggle, they're not worthy to come into the house of God. They're not worthy to be amongst God's people. They're not worthy to approach God in worship. It could not be further from the truth. Psalm 84 is teaching us that these swallows and sparrows, not even doves, not even eagles or hawks, they are the lowliest of creatures. Even they can have intimacy with God. They have a place in his house. So much more do we at our lowest. So may we remember that. May we take that to heart. May we have that kind of humble confidence to go before God and be in his presence, not despite, but because we are at our lowest. The blessing of worship is the humble confidence we have to take shelter in the courts of the king. And that brings us to the second blessing of worship. We saw a passion for his presence. Secondly, strength in our sufferings. We see that in verses 5 to 8. Now, it's clear from these verses that wherever he is, the psalmist is experiencing suffering of some kind. Perhaps it's akin to what, we, what Elder Mark read for us in Psalm 42. We don't know. But in verse 8, the petition, Hear my prayer, give ear is one that appears in several other psalms as well. And in each instance, it's a cry of distress to God for him to intervene on the psalmist's behalf. It's a desperate plea. And not only that, but verse 6 speaks of worshippers on their way to Zion having to pass through this valley of Baca, And while Baca could literally be translated balsam tree, a more poetic translation would be weeping or tears. And it's where we get the phrase veil of tears, V-A-L-E. Yet it's as they go through this veil of tears, what do you know? It becomes for them an oasis. In other words, there's such blessing, such soul-stabilizing strength from being in God's presence that even through our sufferings, somehow God is able to bring forth life and vitality and to transform our weakness into strength. How is this possible? Well, there's something amazing in verse 5, and it's actually easy to overlook. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. You see, the blessing of worship is not just an experience for God's presence that we have for an hour and a half once a week only to go back to our lives as they were before. No, God works through our worship to actually change us. Worship is a formative event. He strengthens our souls and orients our hearts toward him through the means of grace so that whatever veil of tears we must cross that coming week or in that season of life, that valley can become for us a driveway leading back to God's house. Have you had this kind of experience in worship, friend? Even as we show up here each Sunday, we all face the temptation to find and misplace our strength in something or someone other than God. And you know what? It's no different for me as a pastor and worship leader. At our session meeting this past week, Pastor Billy led us through an article by Trevin Wax exhorting pastors to, in essence, be fully present ourselves in worship. Here's what it says. Come what may... There's no substitute for love. Loving God, loving to worship, loving to worship God with his people, loving to hear God's word and to feast on his goodness at the table. God forbid we lose the fire of love and hand down religious formulas that no longer burn within our hearts. We are worshipers. And unless we are filled with ardor and devotion for our task of leading our congregations into an encounter with the living God, Our churches will never become an oasis of God adoration in a parched and weary land. Oh, may CCA be an oasis of God adoration in this parched and weary land. Amen? Amen. Well, it brings us to our last point. We've seen a passion for God's presence. We've seen strength in our sufferings. But there's another blessing that's offered to us here in this psalm, and it's the secret of holy contentment. And it's the final verses, verses 9 to 12. Now, up till now, this psalm has focused mainly on our worship of God and the blessings that come through it. But we have to ask, what exactly is it about God that makes us blessed to be in his presence? I think it's reasonable to ask that. And how should we respond to it? Well, verse 11 tells us, It's his provision, provision like the sun for the earth, and his protection like a shield against our foes. In a word, it's his grace. You see, in worship, we come into the presence of a gracious and generous God, a God who loves to protect and provide for his own. No wonder the psalmist is so eager to get back in his presence. Unlike all the pagan gods in antiquity who demanded more from their worshipers than they themselves could give, the true and living God calls us to worship first and foremost by giving of himself. You know, there was a period of about two years in my 20s when it seemed like everyone I knew was getting married. And maybe you know, some of you can relate to that. And don't get me wrong, I, I was genuinely. Uh, thrilled and excited for my friends and uh, this this new season that they, they were all each successively entering into. But uh, it, was, it was a little bittersweet. It was a little tough because I was at a point where I was kind of struggling to figure out how I could afford to go to all these weddings. Um, and to my shame, I'll be honest, I actually don't remember it, most of them. Um, and might have to edit that out of the recording uh, if some, any of them are watching. But um, it, it was a bittersweet experience feeling that way. But I will tell you this those weddings that I will never forget, that are indelibly etched in my memory, I remember for a reason. Because at each of these weddings, I could clearly see how the hosts, the bride and the groom, went above and beyond, overwhelmingly generously to throw a party that none of their guests would ever forget. It was their gift to their guests, and that's what I felt, even more than whatever it cost me to go, or whatever it cost me to give them a gift for it. I came away feeling like I was the recipient. And friends, that's the kind of celebration that worship is, because that's the kind of God that God is. He's a giver, he's generous, He's not demanding, coercive, or pushy. And so what would be the only fitting response to this kind of grace? Well, verse 12 sums it up with one word. Trust. Blessed is the one who trusts this God. But verse 10, it actually paints a picture for us. It's a picture of holy contentment. A deep contentedness in all that God is and has done for you such that nothing the world can throw in front of you can dangle out before your eyes. No one else's presence could hold a candle to him. Beloved, what grace is this, that the true blessedness our souls crave is actually God's free gift to us to simply receive and rest in by faith? How can this be? Well, there's a kind of silent irony in the answer. And that irony is what we celebrate through the sacrament of communion. Because, as beautiful as the temple was, as much as God blessed it with his presence, the temple was actually never meant to be the ultimate dwelling place of God with his people. The temple was actually a foreshadow of something else, something greater that was to come. And just like the temple in the end was and remained a building made by human hands, so also was it a building destroyed by human hands. And it was no more. Yet God's purpose continued because he made good on his promise through the ta- through the tabernacle and then the temple to send the true temple, Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus Christ, who lived in the eternal and heavenly Zion with his Father in uninterrupted glory and peace and joy, left that abode to come and enter into our space, a world riddled and broken by sin and suffering, and to occupy this space for himself as one of us. He was the one who lived a completely and perfectly upright life, to whom was due all the goodness of God, all of his favor and honor for his obedience. And yet, at the end of his life, he was met with a humiliating death on the cross, an execution whereby God the Father delivered up his own son, who, though he was the anointed one, the Messiah of God, he became the cursed one and bore the wickedness of the many upon himself to suffer their death on their behalf. And because God was pleased with that sacrifice, he raised him up. Jesus' promise and prediction came true where he said, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Because that's exactly what happened. And because he lives today, because he's gone before us back into the heavenly Zion, we have his vouchsafed promise that he will return to bring us home to that same place, to be in God's presence forever forever. Never worrying that we'll be apart from him, as the psalmist was. Never longing for lack of his presence. That's a glorious and thirst-slaking promise that we have through the gospel. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you have never heard it before. Maybe you've never considered that Jesus was more than just a teacher of morals and ethics. Friend, Jesus was the temple of God in its supreme ultimacy. He was the final dwelling place and is and continues to be our dwelling place with God in his presence. And he today wants to meet with us at this table to receive and rest in the free gift that is ours and all of its benefits through this Eucharist, this blessing, this good gift, all for free. All it takes is trust,